David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a young man, and he's been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. The God who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put on a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in a pouch of his shepherd's bag and said, uh, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield-bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give you the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that there is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you very much, Sai. I do keep that passage open in front of you. Uh, Before we look at it, let me pray. Uh, Father, thank you uh, for your word. Guide us. Guide your church, Lord, by your spirit. In these words, may they stir up in us, Lord, our faith and our confidence and hope in the truth and promises of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, well, hello, folks. My name is Darren. A very happy new year to you all and your families. Happy new year of the rabbit. Uh, unfortunately, there are no rabbits uh, in this story. Uh, there, there might have been. It's just not the central thrust of the author. What we do have instead is a big story with a big man and an even bigger God. David and Goliath, children love it, academics row about it, and I think the church, quite frankly, often misunderstands it. 
If you're from Belfast, it means only one thing. One of the two massive yellow cranes in the city that are called Samson and Goliath at the Harland and Wolf shipyard where they built uh, the Titanic. Uh, but when you hear David and Goliath, you instantly, you know what it's all about. It's the underdog versus the champ. And I think these stories, we love it. They capture our imagination, uh, how uh, in any sport or competition or field, there's always a story each year where the amateur squad or team or individual is drawn against the reigning world champion. It makes national news. Or perhaps if you don't like sports, you, you perhaps you've seen the film, The Franchise with Sylvester Stallone, Rocky Balboa. Do you know how many movies are in this franchise? Well, I can tell you, there are nine. Nine movies basically about the same thing, about how the underdog defeats the champ. We keep buying them. We keep going to the cinema to see it. We, we love stories of the underdog against the champion. But the question for us today, I think the question for 1 Samuel 17 is really, what is it all about? What's it got to do with me and, and with God's church Is it about me and how I can stand up to the giants or the bullies in my life? Or if I can carefully select five smooth stones, I will have the victorious Christian life. I can achieve spiritual success, be a master in love, a captain of industry, or a guru in finance. All useful topics I am sure to consider with the eyes of faith, but I just don't believe this is the thrust of the passage here today. And I think the best known passages and narratives and parables in the scriptures are often the least understood. And perhaps if you've ever heard 1 Samuel 17 taught uh, in the way that I've just jested, you might hear the voice of the author coming over your shoulder saying, what on earth does that have to do with what I have written here? For as we see, I think we are all too quick to step into the shoes of David uh, and how we might fight the battles in our own life. But instead, what Samuel is trying to show us is it's more about the living God of Israel who will fight for his people and win the battle, and a young shepherd, a young man's confidence and concern for the name of his God. So we'll examine this story uh, briefly, and my first point is called a concern for the name. Many of us will be familiar with what's going on here. There is a standoff in the Valley of Eli, uh, a valley that is in between two hills, uh, the army of the Philistines against the army of Israel. They'd had a few scuffles before, but today was the day of reckoning. And because they were on two hills with the valley in the middle, no army wanted to risk an uphill battle to attack the other side. And so they came up with this ingenious idea, we will have a challenge, we will have a contest of champions, one man from each army, winner takes all, very literally, he will take everything. And uh, we're introduced to the blue corner. We meet the Philistine from Gath in verses 4 to 7 that were not read for us. We're told in great detail in four verses what an impressive man he is. He is six cubits high and about nine feet, his bronze helmet, how much everything weighed, the weight of the spear, the, the thickness of it, how heavy the spearhead was. And from an academic interest, in the Old Testament, there is no greater description given to anyone else 
in, in all of the Old Testament. Not to Abraham, not to Moses, not to David, not even to Jesus himself. But here we have this great description of who this man is. And you have to ask, what is the Old Testament trying to teach us? Well, it's trying to show us, I suppose, a bit like in a James Bond movie or a Mission Impossible movie, that the enemy have developed the super weapon. They have developed it, they've built it, and the whole world is at, in peril before him. Uh, all of this detail, of course, no man could ever best this champion from Gath. And I think here there is a clear contrast in the text. If you were at our we had Dr. Wright last week, but if you went to the 8.30 and the 5 p.m. service, you would have heard Pastor Alex teaching us about the anointing of King David, how David was chosen above his older brothers, and that famous lesson that man looks at the outward appearance, but it is God who looks at the heart. And here, all of Israel, well, they can only see the outside. They can only see a champion that they have no hope of ever besting. And this Philistine, this Philistine Goliath, he's been coming out every day for 40 days to defy and to call out the armies of the living God. He says, give me a man to fight. I defy you. He's saying, give me, give me someone to fight so we can settle this matter. Defiance is this man's theme, it seems. In, uh, in 1 Samuel 17, he defies the armies of the living God six times. And if you know the Old Testament, to defy the armies of the living God was, of course, to defy the living God himself. And for 40 days, this calling out, this defiance, it was met with silence. As we're told in verse 11, Saul and all the Israelites, they were dismayed and they were terrified. In fact, the odds had got so bad, they looked so long that King Saul had offered great prizes. He'd offered the hand of his daughter in marriage, tax-free living for you and your family. Wouldn't that be nice? And he'd offered a whole other wealth of treasures and gold, uh, except there was one caveat. You had to be able to live to collect. And everyone knew that uh, was too, too, the odds were too long. But this, this calling out, this defiance, it was a tragedy. Because every day they were asked to produce a champion, to produce a man who would fight on their behalf. Except we know, if you've been following through with us in 1 Samuel this season, you know that Israel had already picked a champion. They'd already selected a king from amongst them. In chapter 8, they'd said to the Lord God, we don't want you to be our king. We want a human king to reign over us, to rule us, and to fight our battles on our behalf. And God said, this is a bad idea. This man will let you down. And he said, no, we, we want him anyway. We want a man to fight for us. We can be like everyone else. And now their chosen champion, King Saul, where is he? Well, he's terrified and afraid. He has no concern to fight for the people. And he has no concern for the name of the Lord that is being dragged through the dust in the valley of Eli. No one is concerned until a young man, a young shepherd called David. We met him last week. He's the new king except very few people know it. And what's King David doing? Well, a boy of probably no more than 15, he's doing the sandwich run. He's bringing the bread and cheese between his father Jesse and his older brothers who are in the army. He's deemed too young to fight, and yet this young boy is concerned for the name of the Lord God. 
And interestingly, here in chapter 17 is the first time that David speaks in the entire book. He says in verse 26, Who is this Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David is concerned for the name of God. And I think very helpfully he models for us a helpful application here, a concern for God's reputation and a concern for God's name. As we pray each Sunday in our church, hallowed be thy name. God, that your name should be honored and lifted up because your name is worthy and does possess all honor. Except we know how far from the truth this prayer often feels like. How God's name is not hallowed in our society. The people we work with, those we study with, people often do not even hesitate to use the Lord's name in vain. It is some sort of, it's become almost like a type of white noise, a meaningless expletive that is used. And even worse, when Christians use it, when they use the Lord's name in vain. From the Old Testament was very serious about this. God's name was to be revered. It was one of the Ten Commandments. It was not to be misused. In fact, there were serious punishments for its misuse. But David, he has a deep concern. He knows who God is. And I was thinking about this. You know, you, you wouldn't sit back and let someone insult your, your good friends or your family. But why would we settle to hear the name of the God we love and worship and, and meet and live in the name of? Uh, why would we treat that with any less concern? You know, I, I antagonize most of my friends who don't come to church. You know, we're out somewhere on the ferry or at the beach and something surprising happens and someone will say, Jesus Christ, and they'll take the Lord's name in vain. You know what I do? I lean in very close and I tap them on the shoulder and I say, hey, that's a friend of mine. And they look at me with, with deep concern like a deer in the headlights because they've no idea what they're talking about. It's a, it's a meaningless expletive. And I'm trying to show them in a slightly humorous way that this name is important to me, that you are referencing a real person who has, who has value and significance to my life and faith. Then after they say that, I say, Jesus Christ, he, he died for me under my breath to, to remind me of who, who Jesus is and what he has done. The world, well, it's afraid. It can only see a giant. But David, with the eyes of faith, he can see a disgrace, and he can't allow it. And he can't allow it, but he also, my second point is that he has supreme confidence in the name. And I love this story because it just shows us how God loves to use the unimpressive, uh, the weak, the marginalized, and the foolish things of this world to shame the strong and as the narrative plays out, well, you might remember how it goes. David turns up to the battle. If you, ever, if you've ha if you have a sibling, you, you've had this conversation before. His older brothers say, why on earth are you here? You've left your job with the sheep. You've only come to watch the fight. Uh, he goes and meets the king. The king says, you're too, you're too small. This guy's been a champion since his youth. What on earth? Why on earth are you here? And when he finally meets Goliath, Goliath can only see a pretty boy. And he says, you're too puny. Bring me a real man to fight. But David has supreme confidence in the name of his God. In verse 37, he uses the personal name of God. And as he speaks to the king, he says to him, he says, no, no, no. I have a fighting CV. I have held, the Lord has helped me, held off the, the lion and the bear from the sheep. And as he'd saved me from the lion and the bear, he will 
deliver me from this Philistine who defies the living God as well. David has a supreme confidence and trust in who his God is. And while Saul says, well, you know, God be with you, good luck. And he gives him his tunic and his armor. David says it's too heavy. He ditches it. And he comes out against Goliath. And Goliath is so offended that they've sent out this teenager. He says, am I a dog that you would come out against me with sticks? Give me a real man. And well, we know how it goes. Blink. And you'll miss it. It's a first-round knockout. Everyone's paid for the pay-per-view event, and then it's over in a matter of seconds. The battle does not amount to much. It doesn't need to. As David comes out, and he shames this Goliath who has shamed Israel, and some of the best words in all of one Samuel. Let me read them again. You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's the battle is the Lord's. Great words, aren't they? Great. They capture our imagination and that the whole world will know there is a God in Israel and the battle is the Lord's. And you know what? 3,000 years later, we're still talking about it. The God in Israel, how he defeated the giant from Gath. And the point is very clear. You can come against God. You can defy him but you do so at your peril. Uh, It doesn't matter how big you are, how powerful you are, what conventional weapons you have, who your friends are, what state is behind you, what lawyers you can tool up with, the money in your bank account. With God on your side, your enemy, it's it's a no contest. Uh, God cannot be stopped. His word cannot be stopped, and his plans can never be thwarted. And well, we we know how it goes. David slings off the stone. It uh, hits the Goliath in our translation in the forehead. It also could have been his knee. We're not quite sure. The uh, the giant, he falls on his face and David finishes him off with his own sword. It's a great story, isn't it? How a young boy, supreme trust in the name of his God and God using the weak and the young and the impressive to give his people the victory and their deliverance with a shepherd boy. It's a good story. I know why the Sunday school teachers love it so much. But the question for us is, where do we get significance from this story? And my third point is called significance in the name. And the challenge is, what on earth does it mean? For do we simply just reduce this story to to a matter of of myths for, for young children? Or, as I said at the start, how you stand up to your bullies, how you live the victory? I think the problem we have so often when we read the Bible is that we are so quick to put ourselves in the shoes of the hero. We're so quick to see ourselves as the hero in the text. And we rush in this story to put on the shoes of David. And then when we meet a challenge or or a difficulty in life, we claim these promises of David. We say the battle is the Lord's. You know, perhaps some of you have that 
crocheted on a cushion or a frame somewhere, or you have a Christian fridge magnet, the battle is the Lord's, and uh, you go into, you know, a big date that you hope that works out, or or an exam, or a job interview, or, you know, a a well-known passage that you've got to preach, and you say, the battle is the Lord's. The Lord will surely give this to me. And then it doesn't work out the way you wanted. The job, the interview, the exam, the date, and you can feel discouraged. Or worse, you can get angry with God. Or even worse, you walk away from the faith altogether. And you think, what on earth is going on? You know, when I, uh, my, my last job, when I, I was a curate in, in Anfield in Liverpool, and it was a very, it was a more difficult context than here, and on the housing estate we lived on, there were terrible problems with drugs, with gangs, and the economy was very bad, and we were always praying that people would get jobs, and people's health had problems, we were always praying for people. And yet, as the curacy went on, I saw that people died, and people lost their jobs, and people on and the problems on the housing estate got worse, and people would, would look to us, and they would be tempted to say things like, are we losing the battle? Why is God not delivering these good things that we're praying for, and these things that we are claiming? And I think there's two answers to this, if you've ever done it. Firstly, I think the first problem is we claim promises that we do not have. We claim promises that we do not have. In the book of Deuteronomy, God had made a covenantal relationship with the nation of Israel that if they obeyed him, he would give them military victory. They were assured of it. And David knew this. He was the new king of Israel who was after God's own heart. And he knew that God would give Israel the battle. But unless you or I or your state are from ancient Israel, and you and your army have entered into a covenantal relationship of obedience with the living God of Israel on the assurance of military victory, this promise is not a direct promise for you or for I, that we would have the same military success. And yet so many of us, the interview or the exam you haven't studied for, the battle belongs to the Lord, and then you go in and you get an F, and you feel sad, and you have to tell your parents, and you get upset with God. But this isn't what 1 Samuel is trying to teach us. You know, when I was finishing my theological degree in Belfast, a very, I had a very unique and unusual circumstance happen to me. I had two weeks between my penultimate, my second last exam, and my last exam. So the, the last exam was just a dream. It was never going to happen. I had all the time in the world to prepare for my final Old Testament exam. The one factor, the variable I did not consider was in those two weeks, the World Cup in Japan kicked off. And with the plus nine time difference between Japan and Northern Ireland, there was football from morning, noon and afternoon all the way up to, you know, four o'clock. So I got far less work done than I ever hoped. And the Presbyterian chaplain who took care of some of the guys in our house, he came round the day before our final exam. And he said, how can I pray for you guys? And I said, please pray for grace and mercy. And he said, boys, I will pray for you, but I will pray for justice. And I said, you know, no, 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 no. We don't want to pray for justice. That wouldn't be very good. We want grace and favor. And it's so true, isn't it? We want grace and favor and mercy for ourselves, but we want justice for our enemies and, and, and those who are not ourselves. And in doing so, when we, when we treat the promises of the Old Testament as a direct application to my life, what we end up doing is we reduce God to some sort of personal assistant slash, ma- slash matchmaker slash career manager slash life coach. 
And it's, it's, it's just not simply for us. For the promises in the Old Testament, they, as Christians, they, are, they find their meaning and their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. All of the promises in the Old Testament are yes in Christ. And if you and I are in him, we are united to him. And those promises become yes for us through and in Jesus. So firstly, we, we claim promises that are simply not directly meant for us. But the other thing, and I think the greater concern for many Christians, is that we do not appreciate the promises that we do have, that we have been given. This story is not how you can be like David. This story shows us your need for a David. And if we do that well, if we see how they are yes in Christ, this is where we draw spiritual confidence. This is where we can have significance and value and meaning in our lives. When we appreciate the promises in Jesus Christ, do you think about that? Do you appreciate them? The assurance of forgiveness, of sins, a promise of a restored relationship between God and people, a promise of a place in his kingdom where eternal joy will be in his presence forever, an end to pain and despair for all time. This passage is showing us that we are not David. We are more like the weak and fearful Israelites. We are more like the champion of Gath, Goliath, who comes out every day and defies God in our hearts. Now, this passage, it shows you your deepest need is for a champion, a a champion that will come and fight your greatest battles against sin and the death and devil And we do have them if you're in Christ today. And yet so many of us will go through this Christian life not appreciating the promises that we do have. We are reminded here, David points us forward to a greater champion who, like him, was anointed by God, who, like David, was rejected by his closest friends, who, like David, the world thought he was unimpressive and not up to much, who like David, he stared death in, he stared into the jaws of death, yet with all confidence in the name of God that he would be delivered. And they both, David, he did it like David, he did it for his people. And we know him as a descendant of David, King Jesus on the cross for the sins of the whole world. And I wonder, do you see him today? I wonder, do you think about him? I wonder, do you see him as precious, the one who came for you, the one who stands up for you, the one who looks at death and sin and says, you cannot have them, for they are mine. I have come to stand up for them. These are the promises that we do have. And this is the answer for the fear of death for the despair in the world, the freedom from guilt and shame, how we can persevere with hardship. It is the cure for despair. And yet so many of us, in not failing to appreciate the gospel promises in Christ, we end up going through life like death has not lost its sting. We go through terribly afraid and dismayed like Saul and his army. But it's also the answer for how we go out there after the service, It's also the answer for how you and I face the culture. For like Goliath, our society and our world, it taunts us each day. It defies us. It calls us out. It says, Christian, you're a fool. It says, church, you're on the wrong side of history and you will be judged so. They defy us each day. And that is the answer. That is why we keep coming to St. Andrews each Sunday. 
It's why we meet with our growth groups throughout the week, so we can remind ourselves, we can remember our champion and take confidence in his name and take significance in his promises and what he has done. It's where we find significance and hope, and because the great promise of Christianity that no one in Christ will be, will be defeated, uh, we have an eternal hope in heaven. As Paul writes so wonderfully in 1 Corinthians 15, and I couldn't stop thinking of this uh, as I prepared this sermon this week, where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, a king who will always fight for us, who will never let us down and has already won the battle. Amen. Thank you. Let me close in prayer. Father, thank you that Jesus Christ is our champion. Thank you that he has won the battle on our behalf and the battle is already won. He defeated death and sin and the devil on the cross for all time. Thank you for this story of exciting story of David and how it captures our imagination, but it thrusts us forward to look for a greater champion that, that we all need. I pray for us as a church and for Christians, all Christians here today, that we would be confident in the promises we do have in Christ. It would fill our lives with hope and joy and be the end of fear and despair. We ask you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.